Anyway, hi, gang. Uh, it's great to be back here. And as I said earlier, I have done lots of things with people from UCI over the years. Uh, first things first is uh, what happened. Um, um, so I generally hate do-gooders. I know that might sound kind of contrary for someone who's in medicine trying to help people, but generally speaking, I hate do-gooders. Um, regulatory do-gooders are my specific area where I hate them the most. Um, like in JCO or, or the JC, as they like to be known now, or, or worse yet, CMS, which doesn't even know how many letters they have in their name. I mean, last I checked, it's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which makes me wonder how competent can an organization be that doesn't even know their abbreviation is CMMS. Um, but anyway, um, and so I was on my motorcycle and in three lanes of city traffic on surface streets when some fucking do-gooder in the number one lane stopped despite a perfectly green light in front of her encouraged someone in the oncoming number one lane to make an illegal left turn so the last thing i saw before my accident and by the way she had this magical thinking which is part of being a do-gooder because most do-gooders realize that the only thing that's actually logical thinking is being evil um, being a do-gooder already sort of implies magical thinking. And in her magical thinking, her stopping in the number one lane would cause somehow magically the number two and the number three lane to stop, which of course wasn't true. So the person who was making the left turn looked for a gap in the number two lane between traffic and leapt through it uh, and picked me off in the number three lane on my motorcycle in a very horrible way. So no time to lay it down. And so at that point, you have a choice in a motorcycle, which is hit the object, which means thoracoabdominal injuries. Or eat, and by the way, a, f a lot of them involve scrotum and the, and, and, and the package that it, it's known affectionately among motorcycles as wishboning, which is something that you never wished for your bone. Um, but in any event, uh, faced with that option, I took plan B, which is to lock them up and go over the top. So I did the eject thing. Um, and then, of course, landed on outstretched hands some 15 feet later with bad outcomes. So I have a bunch of fractures on this side as well. And I kicked the car on the way by, you know, like that, and broke my heel. Um, um, <laughs> I got a little sustentaculum daylight fracture in that. And so that's what happened. Um, and it hurts a lot. Um, you know, every time I, uh, you have fractures, it's every time I see a resident write for Motrin for someone with fractures, I'm like, stick your hand out. Let me break that into your finger with a hammer. <laughs> you tell me after I hit your hammer and you have a distal phalanx fracture, you tell me if you think Motrin's going to work for that. Um, so, yeah, so the paramedics, I couldn't take my helmet off because, of course, both arms were broken. Um, um, and by the, the, you know how they talk about weird things that happen, you know, the slow motion things during the accident? Uh so the slow motion thought that was weird in this accident was as the motorcycle went up on a front wheel wheelie uh, and I was about to be ejected, at the point my hand came off, so now I'm upside down, head down, feet up, at the point my hand came off the right brake, I had just a chance to see the front shocks, you know, release their energy because you're down on the nose of the bike. And as they released their energy, I saw, as my feet were going up over my head, sort of between my legs, I saw the front wheel of the motorcycle leave the ground. So I'm flying through the air, and at that point I realize, oh yeah, and the motorcycle's now flying through the air, more or less in the same direction. <laughs> and I remember thinking, hmm, wonder where that will land. Um, and so as I landed and sort of turned, you know, kind of did the crumple thing, I saw the motorcycle coming through the air, and I was like, oh no. And fortunately it landed just next to me, or I would have had both 
lower legs broken. And even then, the motorcycle was sort of standing there, you know, in a bunch of pile of broken glass and fiberglass, upright with the wheels spinning right sort of next to me. And I was like, oh, no, don't fall. Because <laughs> I was like, because if it fall on me, I was thinking, a 400-pound motorcycle with hot mufflers on your left leg, that won't feel good. <laughs> and so it kind of teetered for a second. And went, I was like, oh, thank God. So that was the good thing that happened in the accident, which is that the motorcycle didn't land on me, and after it landed, it fell away from me. But the paramedics came, and um, so I couldn't take my helmet off, so I, was, I had walked off the street by then with some help of some people with my busted arms, and um, the paramedics took my helmet off, and they went, oh, Doc, because they recognized me, which was good. And then they were like, well, oh, Doc, what do you want to do? And I said, <laughs> I said, I said, I want to go home. And they said, you don't really mean your house, right? I said, no, I mean the county. They go, all right, well, let us call and see if they'll take you there. So they did. So I went back to my home institution. Which, which, which resident uh, did you defer on the rectal exam? Um, uh, I, well, let's, let's, uh, so I refused C-spine. I refused a trauma consult. I refused, <laughs> I, I refused a pan scan. Um, and, um, and I made the R5 take me to the OR to wash out my wrist from ortho. But there you go. Anyway, we're going to talk, it's, it's sort of GI, right? So we were given the GI topic, and I offered up Tyler, uh, Ty, uh, Ty or Tyler? Tyler, I offered up Tyler diaphragm, which is sort of the boundary of the, the GI box um, and has the esophagus running through it. So we're going to talk about esophageal injuries for about 40 minutes. And, yeah, that's me. And just for the record, um, I am both a fellow of AAM and of ASAP, and I'm one of those people who voted against the merging of the organizations, and particularly in California, I think both organizations work well together, and they do different things. So for me, it's not an either-or proposition for you when you get to that point of your professional career. It's a both. School colors, yeah, it doesn't look like that. It already has graffiti now. That's our new hospital. Uh, I don't have any investments in esophageal or diaphragmatic or other injuries um, or any of the tools therein. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the diaphragm, and, and it's always worthwhile to link back, and I think particularly in emergency medicine because we're a field that does a lot of diagnostics, diagnosis with imperfect information. We rely a lot on history. We rely on physical. And you, every once in a while, it's really worthwhile in emergency medicine to go back to some of the basics of the anatomy. One of my pet peeves as an attending staff is sometimes it's, it seems like some of the residents I'm working with didn't attend anatomy. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm big on reinforcing that. So this is a diaphragm looking up from below. What you see is the crura. These have a, some CT-relevant findings, which we'll be looking at. You can see there's big things sort of coming through on the backside, the psoas and the quadrata, uh, quadratus lumborum. And then, you know, the goose has got to come through up here, and the aorta has got to come through. And there are some areas where the diaphragm is thinner than others, so some areas might be prone more to rupture, and there are different anatomies associated with those ruptures. You remember some of the basics um, when you're dealing with the anatomy. The phrenic nerve is what makes it move. C3, 4, and 5 keeps the diaphragm alive. That's the partner to the other anatomic song, which is S2, 3, and 4 keeps the shit off the floor. There's sensory referral. Anything that's bothering the diaphragm from underneath is going to refer to C3, 4, and 5 for those reasons. So you're going to have shoulder pain either on the left, which is Kerr's sign, or on the right sometimes it'll happen as well, and it's not called Kerr's sign, and apparently no one claimed that one. But uh, it's basically a, an inverted curve sign. Um, in the back of the diaphragm, if you picture the diaphragm from the side going down back here, uh, frequently people forget how low the posterior insertions are of the, dia of the diaphragm go. And this will become particularly relevant when we talk about penetrating trauma. 
um, and we'll get there. So the lumbar uh, and the lumbosacral triangle of the diaphragm is particularly thin. Some, so we talked about the holes through it. These are the hi hiatuses. And um, the esophageal hiatus is formed by the right and left crura around T10. The cable hypothesis is at the central tendon at T8. Um, and uh, the aortic hiatus is um, uh, at the margins of the crura at T12. So some basic stuff. And I'm not saying everyone should have that at their fingertips, but sort of the concept that there are holes running through this and there are some weak areas and that it has a pretty broad insertion that goes low are all important stuff. This is a CT scan. I sometimes see people pointing these little loops out here as, you know, what vessel is that? No, those are the crura that we were just talking about. And so that's a reminder of a couple things about the diaphragm when you look at a normal CT, which is it's, it is really thin, and this is has obvious consequences. It means that the CT is not going to be an excellent modality for imaging injuries of the diaphragm because really the only parts of it you can see are the crura, which are sort of thicker, sort of ropey things at the margin. The rest of the diaphragm is not going to be particularly well imaged. So if you think CT is going to be a godsend with diagnosing diaphragmatic injuries, you'd be wrong. Now, we're going to talk about um, mechanism of injury with regards to diaphragmatic injuries, and obviously the two big categories are blunt and penetrating, this causes some immediate problems. So much of the literature with regards to diaphragmatic injuries combines these because the literature is trauma registry garbage, where some fellow and trapped in a trauma fellowship or trauma surgical critical care fellowship is forced to find something that they haven't reported on from their database and picks a category and then pulls all the people out with an ICD-9 diagnosis at the end that is their category and then they go back and try and extract from the database what's relevant about it. And so they mix these together frequently to get enough diaphragmatic injuries because they're not all that common. But having noted that they do that frequently, blunt and penetrating are really very, very different. And so when you read the literature where they've mixed them together, they often lead to confusion about diaphragmatic injuries because they really ought to be separated. But if they separated them, they wouldn't have enough cases to get it published even in the Journal of Trash, I mean trauma. Um, and so they're mixed. So let's just talk about mechanisms in, with regards to blunt. You know, if you talk about blunt diaphragmatic injuries, it's motor vehicle accidents, motor vehicle accidents, motor vehicle accidents, occasionally motorcycle accidents where they decided to hit the vehicle rather than go over it, but it's MVCs. Occasionally it's autopeds, occasionally it's fall from heights, and then weird shit that's rare. But the concept to take home is, is that it's motor vehicle accidents. On the penetrating side, it's stab wounds and gunshot wounds, and um, they're, they're fairly evenly distributed, and it would vary where you were on the planet. Some populations like to stab each other. Some populations like to shoot each other. Some like to do a little of both. Um, and we'll talk about that. Yes, there's some impaling and shrapnel or blast injuries. If you want to talk about a place where stuff is blowing up, like Israel, then there'll be blast injuries associated with diaphragmatic injuries. But, to, you know, otherwise, there's not that many of those. So let's start on the blunt side and talk about blunt diaphragmatic trauma. As I said, it's mostly motor vehicles. It takes major forces to blow up your diaphragm, to get it unattached 
either low and posteriorly or high and anteriorly. And with blunt trauma, it is overwhelmingly high and anteriorly that the dissociation happens. And there's usually some impact associated with that blood trauma along the low cost, lower costal margin. So one of the things that is a hallmark for you as an emergency physician is people with lower rib fractures, you got to think about some stuff. You got to be thinking about spleen injuries, you got to be thinking about liver injuries, and don't forget, last but not least, you got to think about the thing that you're not going to be so easy to diagnose, which is the diaphragm. And as I said, if it's major forces and the diaphragm's gone, then you already know intuitively a lot about blunt diaphragmatic injuries, which is that they're rarely isolated, and these people got a lot of other stuff going on. And so the diaphragm injury might not be the highest priority of those injuries, but it will ultimately become important for them. So deformation along the anterior, body habits is important. Fatsos get more diaphragmatic injuries because there's, if they have blunt abdominal trauma, there's more forces that are going to be delivered to the underside of that diaphragm. So being skinny would be good. Multi-system trauma, and again, multiple injuries, and bleeding is not the problem when the diaphragm tears. It usually doesn't bleed that much. So if you're looking for a positive fast on someone who had a diaphragmatic injury, if, the, the, if they had a positive fast, the diaphragm is probably not the source of that blood. Think elsewhere. So major mechanisms um, like this, um, you know, honey, I'm home, um, so that's not going to go well. Um, and what are you going to be finding on them? So everyone always thinks, oh, the stomach's in the chest. I'm going to hear bowel sounds there. and eh, Not likely. So even if the stomach were to translocate, and we'll talk about translocation of abdominal organs into the chest in a moment in detail, even if the stomach were in the chest, you wouldn't be likely to hear much of the way a bowel sounds because a, a pan-abdominal injury like that generally shuts off the parasympathetic outflow, right? It's a pretty sympathetic, I can tell you, when I was rolling around on the ground after my motorcycle accident, I was pretty adrenergic. In fact, I was so adrenergic that it, would, it looked to people who I got there, someone thought, what one of the paramedics asked, what was there, what, how'd you get so, they thought someone had doused me with water. I was that soaking wet, soaking wet from sweat. I, had, I immediately produced three liters of sweat, uh, you know, shortly after impact. So you're not going to hear that. You might hear decreased breath sounds, but that's not going to be because the diaphragm's not working. It's going to be because there's a pneuma or other injuries to the chest. Obviously, rib fractures, flail. A displaced PMI might happen if there was tension pneumothorax, but again, that's not due to the diaphragm. Dyspnea, sure. Um, chest pain and or abdominal pain, sure. Um, and as I said, Isolated diaphragm injury is really rare, so it's hard to pull out what the clinical constellation is of purely diaphragmatic injuries from blunt forces. Laterality of blunt. It's, everyone knows this, and people overstate it, and it actually leads to problems. So everyone knows that the left diaphragm ruptures more than the right because the liver protects the right side from these intra-abdominal spikes in pressure. Having noted that, some of the papers say 70-30, some say 60-40, and I think the truth is more 60-40, which is not a tremendous dominance of left over right, meaning that right-sided diaphragmatic injuries do indeed happen with some frequency, and about 1% are bilateral. So if there was enough force to blow up the left side, there might have been enough force to blow up. So overemphasis of laterality actually may contribute to delay and missing this diagnosis on the right or when it's bilateral. You know, this is the, you know, the classic depiction, you know, and they, sometimes they show the NG tube in there. Oh, look, diaphragmatic <laughs> rupture. And they'll give you that. And that's classic. And as is always the case, 
um, uh, with emergency medicine, classic is, classic is, but it's rare. Classic also means, you know, there's, well, I have it in, a, I think, the next slide, actually, which is the 15% rule. Whenever you hear someone say that's the classic presentation, what they mean is that happens less than 15% of the time. <laughs> so what happens with blunt injury is it's a large anterior rent, as I said, in the diaphragm. Um, due to a rise in intra-abdominal. The stomach is the most likely to move into the thorax. However, less than 50% of patients, even with large anterior left-sided diaphragmatic ruptures, less than 50% of them actually translocate abdominal organs into the chest. So they can have a big tear without translocation, is what I'm telling you. Chest tube placement issues arise here. And remember, you were always taught when you place a chest tube to get your finger in there and fish around. Um, and you should, because it's bad when you stick the chest tube into the stomach and get peas. Um, so you'd like to push that out of the way. And sometimes you can recognize rugal folds on the chest x-ray, which means you were thinking about it beforehand. Usually that's only identified retrospectively. So here's, these are typical images, and there's descriptions of them, and probably many of you have seen these, and if you haven't, you will one day. Um, but my thought when I see these, these injuries is because of what I said earlier, which is that there are other associated injuries that are more pressing, my thought is, yes, this means there were major forces involved. Start looking for the other stuff that you should be doing. Yes, it's nice to make this diagnosis, but there might be other things. And here's another rib fractures. This is more commonly. You can see the stomach in the air, and if you looked at this closely, you might realize that there's an irregular undersurface of this thing that you might have first thought was the diaphragm. And that's because it's not the diaphragm. The diaphragm has smooth surfaces, and that irregular undersurface is rugal folds. So how good is the chest x-ray for this? Obviously, if the stomach's in the chest and there's an NG tube in it, the chest x-ray would be pretty good. But often what you'll, only, what you'll see is a few rib fractures, a pneumothorax, maybe, maybe not, and an irregular diaphragmatic shadow that's normal, that's abnormal, rather, but non-diagnostic. So the overwhelming bulk of literature, this is just one paper, but there's several that say this, that with blunt diaphragmatic um, rupture, blunt diaphragmatic injury, that the chest x-ray is abnormal, but non-specific. That's the key. Sometimes, uh, now that we're scanning everyone with trauma, I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when trauma surgeons came down and they were, you know, raging bulls, you know, throwing stuff around. Get out of the way! I want to go to the OR! And that, you know, they just wanted to operate and they would take everyone to operate. I can get that spleen out of them, clean and jerk it in 30 seconds. And I used to think that they were a big bore and a pain in my ass. And now I fondly look back on those days. Because now you call the trauma service and I have to roll out the grass for them to graze on because they're a bunch of sheep who don't want to take anyone to the operating room. They're like, they're like worse than internists now, except they want to scan everything. And, and you say, do you want to take them to the OR? And they look up from the, from the grass and they go, nah. I'm like, oh, God, please bring back a trauma surgeon who wants to go to the OR, someone who will yell at me and, and say they want to leave the department with the patient. But anyway, I digress. So nowadays, we scan many of these patients, and some diaphragmatic patients are quasi-stable enough to go and get their PAN scan. And so CT findings of diaphragmatic rupture are what I want to talk about next. And the one that comes up much, most is this thing of a collar sign. And they're sneaky and subtle. Once you've seen a couple of them, you'll look like a hot shit when you pick one up. So here's a couple to look at. So you'll be looking at this, and before this lecture, you'd look at this and you go, oh, look, there's a little fracture or something going on there. 
of the liver. You don't see anything diaphragm here. Where's the diaphragm? I don't see squadouche for a diaphragm. What that is is a right diaphragmatic rupture with a portion of the liver pushed up through it, and the diaphragm has constricted the liver and made a kink in the margin of the litter, liver. And you might gather that because this is a contrast scan and there's no bleeding there. If that was actually a liver fracture, where's my blood? Where's the blush? Where's something to go with it? And there is no blood. So that's a collar sign. It's a liver partially pushed up through and grabbed, if you will, by the diaphragm and squeezed a little bit. Here's another one. Very subtle. A little poke. And what's happened here is, that's just a reminder for the radiologist, is this segment of the liver, and when you look at this again, you'll even see almost a line in here, is this lateral segment of the liver has popped up through, and you see the little dimpling kink in the capsule there. These are subtle again, but, and both of them, by the way, I already have kind of implied that right diaphragmatic injuries are harder to pick up than left. And so these are nice, subtle hints to you that there's a right diaphragmatic injury. So how, do this, how does a diaphragm tear? It can get one of these big circular ones or a radial one or some of these linear ones. Um, and the radial ones actually are the most common because they tend to tear along the fibers of the diaphragm, which, as you can see here, are mostly running in a radial fashion. So radial tears are by far the most common. So if you're thinking it's going to look like this, probably not. It's probably going to look like this, and it's probably going to be towards the anterior side. Most of them are right in here which, of course, they didn't put on this drawing when I found it. So it's like, thank you for showing it. You could have put the most common location on the picture. So associated injuries, as I said, real important. 40% have spleens, 40% have chest, head injuries, pelvic injuries. So it's the other injuries that should be your, where your therapy is directed towards. That's the big threat to life. Yes, you'd like to pick up the diaphragmatic injury as soon as possible, and we'll see some data to show why. What are the outcomes um, when, when you look at this diagnostic challenge? And I think diaphragmatic ruptures are a, a diagnostic challenge. All right, it's four to one male to female. That doesn't help me much. But it's 40% mortality when the diagnosis is missed in the early phase of workup and 70% when the diagnosis is made. Now, this is, again, trauma registry data. So it doesn't say there's causality. That's the associated outcomes. It might be the ones that were missed were sicker had more had other injuries that were pinning the trauma team down and saving them and in fact I think that's overwhelmingly likely to be the case but this is the kind of number that's put out there um, and says don't miss it because the mortality goes up I would turn that on its head and say what the data shows is that if you miss it because the patient's sick with a lot of associated injuries the mortality goes up probably the associated injuries Pre-op diagnosis is made in less than 40%, so anytime you make this diagnosis, you deserve a pat on the back. Oh, there you go. Thanks. Good job. Um, we don't get a lot of pats on the back in emergency medicine. It's the nature of our specialty, right? If you got into this job because you wanted your patients to thank you and say how great you were, get out now. Get out now. I always tell the pizza story. I don't know if I've told the pizza story here before, but I'll tell it well. I had this guy come into Rick Bicotta's hospital, boggy belly, hypotensive, pale, looked like shit. I he was in the emergency department for a total of 19 minutes in a community hospital. In that 19 minutes, he got intubated. He got two units of blood. He got a big line. He got a diagnosis of an aortic rupture, and I stopped the vascular surgeon from leaving the facility and took him to the OR and saved his life. And it turned out that this guy owned a pizza parlor one of the best pizza parlors nearby the hospital. 
And for two years after that, he sent pizzas routinely, regularly, almost every weekend to the people in the hospital that saved his life, to the ICU, to the surgical nurses. And every Saturday I'd be working there and a pizza would go by and I'd smell that pizza smell come into the emergency room and I'd sit there whimpering, I like pizza. <laughs> and never once did this guy, this guy would have died. You know, the chances of this guy dying were very high. I did some of my best work on that guy and he never once sent me a goddamn pizza. <laughs> so if you're looking for thank yous, get out now. Anyway. So, one of the other things is a lot of the bad injuries that are going to kill these people in the associated injuries, some of them are head injuries, that's the neurosurgeon's problem. But if you look at the injuries that I described that are going to kill them, most of them are in the belly. So, one of these questions comes up, if they have a diaphragmatic injury, should you go after it from the chest or go after it from the belly? I think it's pretty intuitive uh, to most people, but there is some data to show. You go after it through the belly. Not that that's your decision, but sometimes the sheep need to be waked up from grazing on the grass and told that I think you should go after this through the belly, like with a knife. <laughs> body mass index, I said that fat is bad and increasing body mass increase doubles your risk of a diaphragmatic injury because that protuberance, when it impacts on something, one, it's more likely to impact on something because it's bigger, but when that protuberance does impact, it transmits more force. There's a higher rise in intra-abdominal pressure and more likely to rupture. So PSI would be in there and steering wheels are in there. This is what one looks like from looking up from the belly and you can see it's not bleeding that heavily. And that's one looking down from the top years later. We'll get to that in a moment. Seatbelts decrease mortality and airbags do too. Seatbelts far more than airbags. 50% for the one, 10% for the other. Uh, we don't know what curtains will do, but they're probably not going to affect diaphragm injuries. This probably decreases diaphragm injuries some, although we don't have good data on that because the main cause of diaphragm injuries is impaction from the steering wheel when it's a driver that's injured. And the nature and position of the steering wheel and adjustability of the steering column is also important. That used to be something that vehicles didn't have, but now most vehicles have an adjustable steering column. And so, this is a person who's not going to have an injury. They're licensed. They're attentive, although they aren't belted. There's an airbag, and they're only going 20 miles an hour. So this is the not going to have a diaphragmatic injury thing. Um, that is what it's going to look like. You see a deformed steering column. That's useful information to you, even though that had an airbag. So that airbag did not stop torso impact here. So don't assume the airbag prevents them all. And that's a poster child for a diaphragmatic injury, except the vehicle he's driving doesn't have a steering wheel. And it's a good thing it doesn't because he couldn't get in it. This is now the next poster child. And here's the things. So